It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Study after study confirms that Americans are moving away from organized religion. But why, and what are they moving toward? What does that shift mean for how we relate to one another and live our lives? I think in in our society, especially in American culture, we have a bias towards dogma. We talk about orthodoxy, um, and and a lot of traditions talk about orthopraxy. Praxis comes first, practice matters more. Even people who don't belong to a congregation or subscribe to certain beliefs are probably drawing from religious wisdom and tradition in some ways. Humans are constantly transforming spiritual practices to fit the times, and our modern age is no different. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. In this panel, three experts on faith help us see where religious ideas with deep historical roots surface in today's world. Duke Divinity School professor Kate Bowler, Imam and Muslim leader Harun Mogul, and Rabbi and Jewish leader Shara Stutman come together to talk about modern faith and spirituality. Simran Jeet Singh, director of the Religion and Society program at the Aspen Institute, moderates the conversation. Here's Singh. Kate, I want to begin with you um, to help us get situated in the American landscape. You know, a recent Pew study and, and many studies have been showing us that religious affiliation is on the decline. Mm-hmm. Um, about, and this number is rising, but about 30% of people um, do not declare a religious affiliation in this, in this country anymore. And my question for you is, first, what do you, what do you make of this trend? And second, do, do people not want religious and spiritual wisdom anymore? <laughs> right. And what are our jobs, if so? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think we're in a really strange time of reorientation, of especially how people identify who their communities are. They might have been part of a religious organization at one point. Now they might be sampling in others. Uh, but I think one thing that some of the quest for the correct label for each person is missing is that American culture is steeped in religious ideas that inform much of how we explain Uh, really what we imagine the good life to be, which is our rich conversation today. And so I'm a historian of popular religious traditions, so it means I uh, would love to go on and on about the theology of Instagram. But um, (laughs) I find that I often end up writing about the religious histories then of our almost bumper sticker theologies. And so I thought maybe I could describe three, if I'm gonna like pitch you on, we actually do have deep religious beliefs that we don't identify officially as religious. And let me give you three examples. Uh, One is good vibes only. I uh, went to the Aspen Words Festival one time and I was so excited not to have uh, murdered myself going down the mountain. And I said that to the guy when I was handing in my ski boots, when I was like, oh, thank goodness I evaded death today. And he just like, this really sweet guy was like, oh no. And then he like tapped a little sticky note that he'd put on the wall near the till and it just said, good vibes only. And he was just like, shaky shake. And I was like, right, I forgot. Uh, I mean, in the late 19th century, this movement called New Thought started imagining that words were causal and that good thoughts would create good outcomes and negative thoughts then would create negative outcomes. And it became the religious stuff of every early good housekeeping magazine and what we might think of as like the early Oprah period. Uh, So for the last 150 years, we've had good vibes only as a very common cultural response to how we think about whether somebody is on the right path to, you know, happiness, health, wholeness. And so we have these kind of secular prosperity gospels tucked inside good vibes only. I mean, you can go to Target. It's right beside the Joanna Gaines section is the entire good vibes only collection. Uh, So yeah, I would say that that is a a perfect example of how it constrains us inside a certain kind of religious speech without us even thinking, oh my gosh, what I'm doing is religious. Mm. Um, Another I would mention as a deeply religious belief about the good life is uh, everything happens for a reason. Every time um, you see it embroidered in a pillow or someone hands you a terrible card after a moment of awful bereavement, the idea that you are being 
conscripted into a religious story that there is a divine conspiracy out there to turn every tragedy into some kind of test or spiritual lesson. And it's, it's taken a thought which is, while we do really, difficult times can be unbelievably meaningful, which I believe, and transformed it into a sense that every moment is part of some kind of divine conspiracy, which is a deeply religious assumption. And, uh, and if you know, we don't imagine that it's us, the idea that all losses are secretly gains, just remember yourself in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. I mean, sourdough starters. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, you got a Peloton. There were just silver linings everywhere. There were chicken coop licenses being applied for. There was, um, you're not, you know, cutting down on, you're cutting down on your commute time. You're just spending more quality time with your family. I mean, like, these are part of the stories we tell ourselves that every act, and in this case, mass tragedy, is really there to teach us a lesson about quality time. And so I, I think everything happens for a reason, good vibes only, and I would add the phrase only because it is a particular obsession of mine. Best life now. Best life now is an entire cosmology. It is a phrase invented by America's most famous televangelist, Joel Osteen, in 2004, to coin, like to, to summarize the promises of an entire $12 billion year wellness industry in which all health, wealth, and happiness is there to be a personal show and tell to say, uh, and if you, know, if, if, you, if you just like wonder how much people around you secretly believe this, I just would encourage you to try next time you're at a party or any kind of beautiful social gathering, especially when people look buttoned up, is to just suggest to the person next to you, that you are not living your best life now. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, things have gotten precipitously worse since last you met. <laughs> and then notice the kind of responses you get and just kind of just be a little ethnographer in a moment. Are you hearing like, well, let's just keep it positive. You know, we'll, we'll good, like I'm sending good thoughts. But the sense that they, the, the almost now cultural inability to let difficult or complicated truths land on more solid and more empathetic emotional ground, I think is one of the challenges that I think we face as people trying to come up with maybe a more compassionate account of what do we actually mean when we say we're searching for the good life. Mm. So, so walk us through what this looks like uh, for you as, as a human being. Uh, first time I heard you uh, and read you was, was through your book, Everything Happens. Um, and other, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've been told, other lies I've loved. Other lies I've loved was the like parentheses. Right. I always felt like I needed to slip in there or else right. I was put on like a self-help empowerment circuit. <laughs> well, what, what I'd be interested in is these are, these are scripts that we've all been taught yeah. throughout our lives, um, especially among religious communities. Um, and, and for you, there, there's a real challenge in that moment, in, yeah. in this moment of your life where you're saying, I... Yeah. I want to hold on to my faith, but I'm struggling with this reality. I think so many of us, I mean, the pandemic is a good example uh, where we can't make sense of what's happening. And we say maybe everything doesn't happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. So as, as we're working through this individually, what kinds of doubts came across your mind? And then how do you work through those to a place where these scripts actually might make sense and be meaningful for us? Well, yeah, I feel you, Sherry, you want to say something. <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to think out, I'm trying to figure out what like the Jewish equivalent is to good vibes only. Like, the, it might be like, begin with complaining or something. Like, I just, <laughs> I just, I just feel like, I, I just feel like good vibes only is, it, it, it is fundamentally just like, a, yeah. so now I want to have a whole other conversation with you, but I know that's not why we're here today. Like, I wasn't brought up with the script of everything happens for a reason. Mm. I was brought up with the script of everything happens, which is why when I started to read your book, I was like, damn it, you've got the best <laughs> title ever. And, uh, and we have no idea why, and we can't, we can't really understand it. And so yeah. um, I, I don't want to take us too much off topic, but that is like the scripts that we are brought up with in each of our individual traditions might look a lot like the American scripts that we are also brought up with, which I do think are you know, very heavily influenced by Christianity and by, um, and by capitalism and all the things and individualism, but I, they're not always exactly the same. Um, 
but uh, I, we don't need to go there now. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. That's, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, thank you. I think that, I mean I think it's a perfect example of whether there's like an inherent like especially and I'm not an expert in American Judaism, so this is at the edge of my ability to say interesting things. So please correct me. <laughs> but for for exilic religions, for people who don't then get to be at the center of a story about America being the chosen nation, not you know the, the, the different religious traditions in it, especially minority religious traditions, we find that it goes into this very secular, broad story about how all things are there to confirm our you know, health, wealth, happiness. And so I, I think part of the good vibes only, everything happens story is, is really designed to be a dominant um, cultural account that, that includes some people and absolutely excludes others. And I do think there is a way that I'm more American than I am Jewish, right? Like, uh, like American culture, everywhere the Jews have lived, which is all over, like we have taken from the cultures that we are a part of. So I'm sure there is some synagogue who's like, tagline is good best life now best judaism now yeah yeah her and i want to bring you into the conversation um you know one of one of the one of the things that i love about about having you in this room thank you <laughs> it's me she wasn't interrupting it was still my voice it's the, the script yeah. <laughs> yeah. so harun you as a you know, as a, somebody who practices Islam, as somebody who teaches Islam, as, as an imam yourself, um, I'd love to hear from you, what does it look like for you to draw from your tradition uh, that can contribute to your own development, growth, um, your, the way that you live in this world? Are there, are there any examples you can give us that, hey, this is something that I'm not getting from American culture, but something that I draw from Islam that, that brings me power in this world? Sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming out. Um, we're honored that you skipped Doug Emhoff, and now five people don't realize that Doug Emhoff is speaking. And, <laughs> and then they just you know, keep getting up. They're going to quickly get out of the room. Wait, 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 wait. Um, I should just introduce myself. You're a as, terrible I'm, marketer. I'm Doug Emhoff. You're in, the, you're in the right room. It's fine. Um, you know, um, it's very exciting. We're taking over the system, you know, time and time again. But I wanted to, you know, I think. Um, so I want to start with something a little bit, uh, a little bit dry and, and boring, um, and, and you're stuck here, so why not? But you have Wi-Fi, so it's okay. Um, I was going to say, uh, you know, Islam is still, to many Americans, I think, a religious tradition that's quite unfamiliar, although there are a lot of prominent Muslims across American history. Uh, you know, of course, uh, people like Malcolm X, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Shadi Hamid, uh, Barack Obama, right? So there's lots of different people who, that was a joke, <laughs> just checking, you know, see if you're paying attention. Um, there's always a few people in the back who are like, I knew it, you know, quickly, you know, I was like, I probably created Trump, like I made this joke once, and then it just, you know, little, little did we know that, um, but, but in all seriousness, I think, you know, what I loved about what you were saying is, and, and the way we frame things is, a lot of times we ask questions like, what do religions believe? Mm -hmm. And I think that's not really the right question. I think a far more interesting question is, what do religious traditions want us to be? And how do the practices associated with religious traditions create certain outcomes and preclude certain outcomes? So I'll give you a simple example. In, in the Muslim tradition, uh, you know, Islam is a, a, a radically uncompromising, unitarian, monotheist tradition. So we believe that uh, there is not only one God, but God is purely and absolutely one, uh, that the divine transcends creation. He's not a thing. He's not in anything. Uh, he's not a he or, or a she or, or in a place or a time. Uh, all of these things are creation. And so uh, the, the divine divine being, the, the original and, and true and only necessary self, uh, is, is beyond us, but yet accessible to each and all of us. So Muslim prayer, for example, that I, I, is, is at the heart and core of the Muslim practice is this very simple ritual that Islam is, as a religion is meant to be very portable. It's meant to be very accessible. Uh, all you really need to do to pray is to really have a little bit of water to clean yourself. And if you don't, that's fine. Uh, to know the direction of Mecca, but if you don't, that's fine. Uh, and, and to know the time of day. Uh, but this very deceptively simple practice, I think, creates a very deep consciousness of where you are, when you are, like where the sun is in the sky, right? When the shadow of an object is twice the length of the object, then that's the time for prayer. Mm. Um, when the first stars appear in the sky, that's a time for prayer. Uh, and, and so when you do this over and over again, and, and you unite your inside and your outside, right, that you, you can't you can't humble yourself spiritually or mentally or, or financially or what have you um, if you don't humble yourself physically, right? That these things are all connected, that you can't separate uh, who you are inside from who you are outside. When you do that over and over again, you create a, a certain kind of unity of being. Uh, a certain kind of presence. You have an awareness of, of what's going on in the world. And I think in a time when we're very disconnected from natural rhythms, that's a very valuable thing. It's not 
I'm by any means saying it's, it's exclusive to the Islamic <laughs> tradition. I'm just describing it from within my own tradition. There's broad similarities and also important differences. But I think the other thing that I find very important in a time of loneliness is this idea that, that when we pray, and I'd, I'd love to hear about prayer in, in all our traditions and, and worship and meditation and different forms of presence, um, when, when you're praying to a being, you're in a dialogue. And, and really, we only know ourselves through other people. Right? You don't really have a sense of self in a virtual way. Right? But when you sit and talk to a person, that's one of the things I like about being here, is you talk to someone and you encounter difference and similarity, you change yourself, but you also confirm yourself and affirm yourself. And so over and over again, when you do this, when you have a, a dialogue, as, as weird as it sounds, with a being that is both immediately present and yet nowhere, um, and not in anything, but responsible for sustaining each and everything, including you, uh, it builds a deep sense of individuality that actually I'm not, I'm not limited to the stuff I'm made of. I'm not limited to my economic or social circumstances. Uh, wherever we are in life, I think positionally that is a, a very meaningful thing. And, and I think that these are practices, you know, not exclusive to any tradition. I'm, I'm not giving you a hegemonic discourse. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's later when, you know, Islamophobia <laughs> goes down, then we'll, then we'll strike. Um, but um, just, I'm just kidding. This is, this is totally being recorded. Um, but it's fine. It's like people are like, your phone is listening to you. I'm like, congratulations, you're Muslim. Um, so um, it's, this has been happening for a long time. Um, a few people are, are very surprised. They, they haven't been reading the news for a few decades. Um, but what, what I, I say in all seriousness, though, is that um, these kinds of practices uh, create certain kinds of people. And I think one of the most interesting things we can do, especially to, to for, for kids, for, for future generations, is ask, who do you want to be? And how do you get there? Mm -hmm. What are the practices, the communities, the spaces that inhibit or encourage those outcomes? And are the things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives actually um, moving us in that direction or taking us away from that direction? Yeah. Mm. You know, Krista Tippett in her book talks about spiritual technologies. Um, and I, I think it's a, a pickup on, on what Foucault calls the technologies of the self. And actually, mm -hmm. uh, the late Sabah Mahmoud writes about this when she's talking to Muslim women. And, and she's saying, what, what do you gain from wearing a veil, a hijab, a niqab, whatever it is? And, and what she learns from them as she explains it to them is these are practices that help us become the people we want to be. This is how we develop and cultivate qualities. And I found that so powerful. Yeah. I think in, in, in our society, um, especially in American culture, we have a bias towards dogma. We talk about orthodoxy. Um, and, and a lot of traditions talk about orthopraxy. Like praxis comes first, practice matters more. And so can you, can you talk us through a little bit about what does, what does practice look like? Can you give us an example? Is there embodied practice um, that, that you see in the Islamic tradition that feels different from what you see in the broader American landscape and something that you think contributes something unique? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, ritual prayer in the Islamic tradition is very embodied. You know, you stand, you bow, you stand again, you prostrate, you sit. Um, they're physical movements. They have to be performed in a very exact way. Uh, we relate the inside to the outside. So when you are prostrated on the ground and you have your head on the ground, that is when you are at your spiritually most elevated. Uh, so there is a connection between lowering yourself and becoming a better person. Um, and, and specifically that you are not allowed to bow to anyone or any person or anything except for the divine. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's also a kind of dignity of the self that no one has the right to, to ask you to do that. Um, but a lot of our prayers are congregational, which is like a whole nother adventure in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, because so we, we pray in, in rows, right? Like next to each other, the, the line we use is shoulder to shoulder, foot to foot. And so in Ramadan, for example, these <laughs> prayers are like an hour, hour and a half long. And now, it's like a, a wonderful experience of how annoying other people can be and you can be, right? <laughs> so many people don't seem to know their phone is ringing, right? Like you're trying, you're like, I'm in the zone, I'm gonna have like a great time and then instead someone's being pinged because like they can't find, I don't know, the milk, right? So like that, you get to hear that. The person next to you, you know exactly what they had when they broke their fast because they've been hungry for 18 hours. Now they're digesting their food not very well, right? <laughs> so you know what's happening, right? You know who is wearing deodorant and who's not wearing deodorant, right? You might remember in the middle of it that I'm not wearing deodorant, right? And I'm, I'm saying these kind of trite things, but it's actually, it's very profound because I think when you don't have embodied and, and communal ritual that forces you to confront difference, yeah. it actually forces you to ask very hard questions about whether you can live with other people who, you know, you don't have uh, some sort of, 
tangible direct relationship to or need for. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I think it, it creates a lot of questions that we would do well as a society to ask. So when I go to a mosque, right? So I'm a person with a particular background and a particular income and so on and so forth. And I go to a mosque. Um, there are people from all different backgrounds and perspectives. I have to ask myself how my presence translates. Right? Am I, are the clothes I'm wearing, do they, do they befit the dignity of the person? Am I showing off? Is the car I'm driving liable to provoke in someone a feeling of envy or inadequacy? Right? Like these are questions you ask yourself because you're in a community with people. Right? And then you know, you know when, when people are facing a hard time, if you, go to the, if you go to a service or a community or meditation circle day in and day out and someone's not there one day, immediately it provokes a question. Where are they and what's my moral obligation to this person? Right? So I think embodied practices are something we definitely need yeah. uh, a lot more of. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in my, in my tradition, we also have a daily practice, prayer and song. And, you know, one of the things I love about it um, is that it makes me feel connected to people I've never even met before. Mm -hmm. And not just on the other side of the world, but also over the span of time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think in a context of, of disconnection and loneliness, uh, maybe there's something really powerful about that practice. Mm -hmm. uh, Shira. Right. I was just, we, you know, we, we think, uh, often we can think of our religious communities as places that are not diverse, right? You get a group of Jews in the room, it's how, how can it be diverse? But that's factually inaccurate because diversity is so much wider than whatever our first image of diversity is. And so when we are in community together, it, there is a way that is very countercultural to the, our experience in America, which is not nowadays about being in community. It is about, and maybe historically as well, it was about the, you know, the myth of the cowboy, you know, who like went out west all on their own. And, and so, and so, the last place that I worked was a place called Sixth and I in Washington, D.C., and I was working almost entirely with millennials and Gen Z. And one of the things that became very clear very quickly was many, that the experience of being community is something that needs to be taught, and it needs to be learned over a lifetime. We want it to be intuitive. We want to be, I mean, talk about your, you have to think about things, but how often do you not think about the car, right? But going to the mosque helps focus you. And so we had to teach piece by piece by piece when you, Go to a shiva, which is a, um, after someone dies, it's a, a moment of the community coming together. You should go even if you didn't know the person very well. You should go, it's not about you, it's about them. And step by step by step, one of the things that communities are doing, I think religious communities, one of the reasons that I'm like a, I'm like a proselytizer for religion, you know, as, as helping to sort of heal our world, evidence to the contrary in many ways, I know. It's like, it's because it teaches skills from whatever moment you first step foot in it, whether you step foot in it at birth or whether you step foot as an adult, it teaches you certain skills about how to be as a human and as part of something that is bigger than you in the world. Mm. Yeah. Share, share with us what some of those skills might look like, drawing from the Jewish tradition, something that those of us in the room might not be familiar with, but what, what is a, an idea, an insight, a practice, a tradition that's been meaningful to you that you haven't found elsewhere? Oh. How long do we have? <laughs> um, I guess what's, I guess, okay. I'm gonna tell you the story of my husband, who is sitting in the room right here, but I won't point him out. He can, you can go find him at the end, right? <laughs> and he didn't give me permission, so I'm just gonna look at this side of the room for the next few minutes. <laughs> um, so my husband grew up ethnically Jewish. You know, he has Jewish parents, as it were, but with no Jewish, I always joke that he grew up with like all of the baggage and like none of the like love and joy that religion can bring. <laughs> Um, and, you know, when he and I first started dating, I was, I was Orthodox. I was very observant Jewishly. And he was sort of like lovingly like came into our family system. He is still, we, next week is our 25th anniversary. And I, I would not still, to this day, I would not call him a deeply observant person. But what does he love? He loves Shabbat, right? And every tradition, well, I don't know if every tradition, but your traditions also have Shabbats in a certain way. He loves the Sabbath, right? Yeah. And he's the head of a school, and he's, it's a very intense job. And yet, from every Friday night, he does not work. No matter what's happening at the school, it is 
out of his hands, right? And I put that in quotes because he doesn't believe in a God who cares if he's home or if he's at school, but everyone says, oh, he can't, he's out of his hands. And every night, every Friday night, we sit at the Shabbat table, the Friday night table. Our kids have to be home, right? They are not allowed to go out. No football, they don't have a football, whatever, you know, like no, whatever kids do on Friday night, they're home. All of their friends come, right? Because their friends, this is there's something different and something sweet. And we sit there, he says, the blessing over the wine to a God that he does not believe in, but he believes in the story that is told during this blessing, which is the story of the fact that we were slaves. It's our myth, right? We were slaves. We were freed. It's our responsibility to work for freedom for people all around the world. He sings that prayer to all these people in a language he doesn't know, and we bless our children. Mm-hmm. Every Friday night, we stop and we say, I love you exactly as you are, right? Sunday, we'll go back to all of the critique, clean your room, do your homework. Like, right now, you are exactly who you should be. It's like this moment of holiness between him or us as parents and the kids and our community. And it's, just, and, it, and it's shared nowadays by so many people, and this goes to some of what you were saying, Kate, earlier, was so beautiful. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, right? Like, we all are searching for something. And the, one of the many blessings of America is that we can find it in each other and in the ways that our different religions and learn from each other are sort of approaching this, this, this moment that we're in, whatever the moment is. Mm-hmm. A lot of people I hear who talk about the meaning of Sabbath or Jummah or Sunday worship um, is the opportunity to slow down, to quiet the mind. Is is this something, I, I mean, I'm hearing you describe the sort of family connection, the love, the reflection on um, what it means to be free, what what you're inheriting as a community. Um, what, what role do you see silencing? This is for, for all of you, silencing, slowing down. Is this something that you're seeing that spiritual traditions offer us as, as solace? You're not that quiet, are you? <laughs> <laughs> that was good, right? That was a good joke. That was a good joke. That one didn't land. I apologize. I apologize. Sorry, guys. You paid a lot of money and you're disappointed. <laughs> Did you want to talk about no, reflection? I would, I would like you to talk. Hmm. Well then, I guess um, I, I think one of the things that worries me most, even about the way uh, we're, we try to sell people reflection right now, Calm App, etc. Lady at my hot yoga studio explaining manifesting to me, etc. <laughs> um, is that so often? a thing that is lovely, which is the deep pause and that like gorgeous remaking of the human person that you were just describing, Shia, where you're just like, you are made in God's image and in the love you see in my eyes. You looking at your kids like that and their friends is so spectacular. And that feeling of being remade is that like deep, like that can happen in those big pauses. I think what's worried me, because I, I study self-help, so I've been reading hundreds and hundreds of these self-help books, which I uh, love, which is why I read them and study them. Uh, but the sense that uh, it really quickly dovetails into some kind of optimization obsession that people have, where they just need to like master their morning routines, mm-hmm. and there's someone out there who's already had... And so, sometimes I hear people describe a deep desire for something like that pause, and then they go... Well, I heard that this person did it and they do it 20 minutes here and they have this whole process and then it's made them more creative and it's made them more present. And like the the problem that you see right in that little connection between those two thoughts is there is a deep good in the pause and the love and the, the sense, I think, of the connectedness of God and all. And then the immediate desire to instrumentalize it, right? To make it useful, to make it usable. To, sometimes we even just do it to explain it to other people about why we need to justify a minute alone. But what if our best practices don't make us smarter, faster, more efficient, more well-rested, more prone to, you know, goop, to goop all day, every day? <laughs> I... I guess what I just, I love what I'm hearing that part of what's so difficult between um, practices and that wisdom is that the thing can be good all by itself. And we don't immediately have to make it good because it helped us become this. 
you know, optimized magician of efficiency. And I, I guess I just want that for all of us. I really do. Any other reflections from the two of you? I know, I know there's some practice within your traditions around silence, slowing down, reflection. I mean, we just passed the month of Ramadan, yeah. um, and there's, there's a lot of that baked in there as well. So I, I grew up uh, the child of Pakistani immigrants, so um, I can't relate to good vibes only. Um, it was like, I got a 98 on my test. Like, you're an idiot, right? Like, um, this is why you came to this country, right? Like, what the hell's wrong with you, right? And I, now I do it to our kids, so it's, it's important to have continuity, right? Because um, it's that deep feeling of insufficiency that drives you to success and then, you know, feel like it's not a success. So, you know, it's, it's great, right? Can, can um, we talk about religious trauma at yeah, some yeah, point? Yeah, okay, yeah, we'll yeah. get to like in, in our community, it's like, oh, you know, so-and-so's a neurologist. Just like, oh, he couldn't be a neurosurgeon, right? Like, it's, you know, it's like a little bit, you know, it's like, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know, it's like, oh, um, you know, um, and uh, yeah, so that uh, it's, it still hurts, but it's okay. Um, I love how much we just learned about you. It's all, you know, literally, so Simmer and I, as you know, we know each other from Columbia. When I got into Columbia, literally the first thing my dad said is, are you sure it's an Ivy? <laughs> Literally, the first thing, that was the first thing he asked, was like, are you sure? Like, have you, have you done it? Um, so, um, but no, in, in all seriousness, you know, growing up, I think um, when, when you come, you know, when you're, you're trying to bridge worlds, you, you really struggle with your identity and try to figure out how to relate these things. And, and I think everyone does that in, in different ways. Uh, and I would often look at my religious tradition, and if you look at descriptions of the divine in the Islamic tradition, it's really weird. Uh, it over and over emphasizes, emphasizes how alien and foreign the divine is. So, you know, if I'm just giving you translations of texts, uh, you know, uh, he's not a parent, he's not a child, he's not a he. Uh, uh, there is nothing like him, there's nothing like the like of him. Uh, he does not sleep, he does not rest. Uh, you know, like these constant descriptions of the divine as utterly detached from anything we relate to in our, in our embodied lives. And, and I would always, and, and then when you experience it, um, you, you kind of feel as if there's, it, it's a religion of imposition and harshness and strictness and coldness. Uh, and then as, you, as I studied on my own, and, and that's one of the reasons why I was in graduate school is to try to figure this out, is I realized that actually the distance is what makes the intimacy possible. Is that if you believe in, in a, a presence that is so unlike us, it is always available to us, right? A, a being that does not need to sleep, that does not rest, that does not tire, that is pure self-sufficiency, that is being itself, uh, that being is available to literally every single person. So whether it's my 11-year-old praying every day after sundown for the Bengals to win the Super Bowl, and, you know, um, it's like there will be a Bengals Super Bowl somewhere in the future, right? Like, inshallah, um, to, to quote Joe Biden um, but, uh, um, and Barack Obama. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so there's that. And, but, you know, to someone who's, who's genuinely suffering and struggling mm. and, and no one prayer supersedes another, that wherever we are in our lives, whatever is meaningful and important and difficult for us is meaningful, important and difficult. And, and it is heard. And so, uh, for me, uh, and this is something that, that really hit home in Aspen, is certain times in the Muslim <coughs> tradition are considered particularly auspicious for being uh, aware of the divine. The divine is always aware of us, right? It's more, are we aware of what is aware of us, right? So we're never actually alone. And two of the times that I think it's really interesting that Islam emphasizes uh, sitting in the presence of the divine or being present with the divine uh, are when you're traveling and you're dislocated. You're, you're, I mean, even you know, in our day and age when you know, travel is so much easier than you know, probably ever in the past, um, still it's, it's, it's hard, it's difficult, it's weird. And, and the second is late night. Mm -hmm. um, when you are, I think you brought up this point, the 2 p.m. versus 2 a.m. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing, right? Like at 2 p.m. I am my optimized self. At 2 a.m. I'm like a, a big mess, right? Like, you know, what's wrong? I'm awake, it's, it's late, you're, you're, you're anxious, you know, is Columbia an Ivy, right? Like all these questions <laughs> that you're asking yourself, right? Um, it's okay, right? Uh, but, but in all seriousness, it's those moments when you were at your most vulnerable that, you, that, that we are most connected. And so there is never, there's actually no such thing as being alone. And, and I, I, it's something I wish we all had a deeper sense of, the yeah. sense that we are all connected. However we define it, to, to the wider world, to each other, to people who love us, uh, to goop, whatever it might be. Um, we, are, we are all connected to something. We are never really alone. And I think what would be really interesting is to investigate, not giving you a book project or anything, but... Um, 
where do these myths come from of, lo of, of aloneness? Mm. Like what have we introduced into our lives that allow us to feel so disconnected and why are we doing that to ourselves? Mm -hmm. Right, right. And to what extent are we, are we lying to ourselves when we say we are the most connected society in human history? I mean, we say that all the time and it's true in a way. We're closer to one another in proximity. It's easier to meet people we never would have otherwise. Uh, but do we actually feel connected or do we feel lonely? And, and I mean, we're seeing over and over again the impact of that loneliness on with the mental health crisis, the depression rates, the suicide rates. You know, I, I, in listening to this conversation, I keep thinking back to my own childhood where, um, you know, I was, I was raised in a religious family. I wasn't religious. Um, I looked religious. Um, and, and the first time somebody called me a terrorist was when I was 10. Mm. And... Um, it was, it, was, it was a soccer referee. He wanted to check my turban for bombs and knives. And, um, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I let him touch my turban. And, um, and I wanted to play. He was an adult. I was a kid. Um, and I just remember being so mad at myself with my response. I was so mad that I gave in. And I promised myself that next time something happened, I'd, I'd stand up for myself. And um, less than a year later... Uh, I was play fighting with a, with a basketball teammate in the locker room, and he pulled off my turban. He made a racist joke. We were play fighting. I wasn't offended, but I flashed back to that moment and that promise to myself, and I just jumped on him and started punching him. And, yeah. and, and our teammates broke us up, and you know we washed off, and, and I left, and I remember being so confused. Like, now I wasn't feeling... I stood up for myself. That's what I thought I was supposed to do. And I was still so upset. And I think that for me was the moment where I was starting to see that, you know, these, these answers that were given culturally, right? There was, for me in those moments, it was fight and flight. Mm -hmm. It was, let me, let me give in to somebody's racism. Let me fight back against somebody's racism. And they just weren't sufficient. Like I didn't feel like those were going to be my answers. And that's where I started to tap into spiritual teachings and say, how do you, um, respond to hate with love? How do you see the humanity in people who don't see your own? Mm. And it's, it's hard and it's, it's complicated. And, and Shira, you, know, you, you mentioned religious trauma. And I, I know you, you think about this a lot. We've talked about it before, but I'd love to hear, hear your perspective. I, we'll, we'll move to questions in a few moments, but um, how, how do we deal with trauma? What does religious trauma look like? What, what can you share with us here? Okay, I want to talk more about what they were saying, but I can talk about trauma instead. <laughs> um, this is a terrible story that you just told. I'm just, I just feel like I need to, we need to say what, God, what we are all feeling. Yeah. Um, and I can speak for the Jews. I mean, no, sorry. <laughs> I can absolutely not speak for the Jews. And every single Jew in this room is probably going to disagree with what I'm about to say. But like, I just certainly can't speak for any other, you know, for any, uh, anyone else. But, you know, the... the the Jews are a traumatized people. Like, we are a deeply, deeply traumatized people for good reason. You know, we have been, I don't know, if you wanted that part, you, could have, you would have gone to the other thing happening right now. But, like, <clears throat> just trust me, it's, it's true. And one of the struggles we have in the Jewish community of the 21st century is how to respond to the moment, not through a lens of trauma, mm -hmm. but through a lens of this beautiful tradition that has had a playbook for 3,500 years of how, a playbook with like a, you know, a three-ring binder, things come in, things go out over the years <laughs> of how to be in the world, like that is objectively good, how we, how we, how we work hard not to respond from a place of trauma. And I really, um, it, so for, I'll just give you a, a few examples, like soft example and difficult examples. Like, I don't think it would be too far afield to say that like, the Jews were among the peoples who invented conversation across difference, right? Like if you read our Talmud, our, one of our most sacred legal texts, it is 5,000 pages, it's like 5,500 of rabbis arguing about things. Only 2% of any of those arguments are ever resolved. They're all just arguments. We are a people of arguing, right? You know? So, and yet we can't talk to each other in the Jewish community today, right? So we, we are letting our trauma reaction 
We are letting our trauma reaction just drive us in certain ways that keep us from talking to each other and out in the world. I was a... I, was in, I had a revelation in therapy once, as all good Jews do. Um, we are, I think, still the most therapized people in America, which is a, um, it's a badge of honor. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I was talking about my dreams and my therapist, I said, so I said, so, you know, I had that dream last night, the one that we all have, where, like, it's the middle of the night and the Nazis are coming and you can't find your glasses. You know that dream. And my therapist was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I don't think we all have that dream. And so the question is, how can we not, like, always feel like the Nazis are behind us? You know, another, and sort of just, like, live into the beauty and the grandeur of this tradition that we have been given, that we get to share with each other, rather than always feeling that, like, the, the Nazis are around the corner and therefore we need to be more xenophobic, more closed-minded, less open to the world. You know, the Jews have learned this, thank God, they we're starting to learn this finally with the issue of intermarriage, which for a while Jews were like, nope, no non-Jews, thank you very much. And then we were like, oh, do you know who make the best Jewish members of a Jewish family? The non-Jews, right? <laughs> and so now, you know, 75% of Jews marry non-Jews in America. It's like, it's one of, I believe, one of the great blessings. And so just like, that's my prayer, is that like we are, don't get stuck in the trauma and that we're able to like sort of live in the beauty. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I, I want to invite you all to ask questions. I see a hand up here right away. So if we can bring some mics around, um, we'll have about 10 minutes for, for questions. One here in the blue shirt, please. Thank you. Well, thank you for this wonderful panel. Um, I'm Sadan Ndhume. I'm uh, at the American Enterprise Institute and the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Um, I had a question that sort of goes off of, you know, Simran's point that he started with, which is that we live in a country where 30% of the people say they have no religious affiliation. But all of our traditions... Um, particularly the traditions that are uh, most predominant outside of America, um, the idea of leaving the flock, of not belonging, uh, it's much rarer, right? Because you're just sort of, if you're in, you know, if you're in Pakistan, it's, you're, you're basically a Muslim and you stay a Muslim and you don't really have this option that is so readily available in the West. Right. Similarly, if you're in India and you're in Punjab, you're, you know, you're probably, if you were born into a Sikh family, your options for sort of radically leaving are much more limited. So my question for you is, um, for all of you, is that in this highly secular society, how do you reconceptualize the idea of a religious flock, which in some ways you're forced to adapt because you're not able to necessarily draw from your own traditions because what you're facing is new? Mm. Great question. I think secularization theories in the United States is still like a very hot topic. Um, the best study that's come out about how we affiliate or disaffiliate comes from Mark Chaves with his National Congregation study, which has been a delight. But I, I think one of the, and, and sometimes it's less about people believing other things or leaving flocks and significantly much more dictated by birth rates, which would follow along with the your first argument about whether we stay in groups that we belong in. So uh, conservative Christians, for example, have higher birth rates than liberal Christians, by and large, by denomination. They'll have 3.1 kids, uh, and liberals won't have quite the rate of replacement. And so sometimes we miss a little bit when we think, well, some people are leaving religion, or they're just, we just see some shifts in the demographic pattern. I also think that we're not really secular in the way that we think because we are overwhelmingly dominated by not, by these default American religions. And that's much of what I study. So I, when I hear like a, a spiritual, but uh, even a vaguely spiritual conversation in public, it, it's usually rested on the invention of certain American religious traditions that are about 150 years old that people don't imagine as religion. So I think we're gonna see less, um, and in fact, much of the discourse about atheism that we had 20 years ago hasn't resurfaced because that was kind of an argument that people would have about 20 years ago. We're like, okay, there's a certain cohort. They're typically more educated, cosmopolitan elites. They're just gonna go a certain way. So goes Europe, so goes America. And I think we're finding that it's actually a much more complicated pattern than that. And that maybe will be dictated by the degree to which people deci we decide immigration policy in the States. 
Canada, for instance, which has maintained very high rates of immigration, has much more of the persistent religion, religious, I would say tribalism in a nice way. Um, and so I think we're going to see a real patchwork of how this goes moving forward. So very quickly, because I think it's a great question. Um, for me as an American, uh, that is of concern, not because I think people should belong to a specific religious community, but because people should belong to communities. One, because it's vital to our health, mentally and, and spiritually and emotionally, but two, because this is a pretty harsh society to live in if you do not have networks and associations and relationships. And that doesn't mean they're all equal, but like as a simple example, when I was uh, 20 years old, I was jackknifed. Um, I had a severe back injury, I was in the hospital for a while. The surgery, I think, altogether came to $100,000. Nobody ever discussed the cost with me because my parents are doctors. What would my life have been if I, you know what I'm saying? Like we have all these discourses of, you know, hard work, this and that. And yeah, I'm, I'm not discounting that, but there are lots of, so, so when we say people are disaffiliating, I, religions can often be very oppressive, right? And communities can be very suffocating. Um, but if you are disaffiliating, that's, maybe that's a, a right and good thing, but what, is, what are you being affiliated into or able to affiliate to? So I think that's an important question for us as Americans, or what are the spaces that people find belonging and connection in and that are strong enough that people will sacrifice for each other? Because we've basically proven as a country that we're not that interested in that. And, and for us as Muslims, I think this is actually a process. So this is what I wrote about in, in my last book. You can go ahead and buy it. I won't mind. You can go online right now. I really, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, it's also at the bookshop. Um, but, but this is the thing. I think this is something Muslims have gotten horribly wrong about Islam. Basically, we believe that, you know, God communicated to human beings through prophets over, you know, across human existence from Adam and Eve through, you know, Moses, Jesus, John the Baptist to Muhammad. Muhammad is the last one. After him, there is no more revelation. It's up to humanity collectively to figure it out. Right? So what that means is that there is no decisive final authority in Islam. So if you ask, for example, Muslims, what is your position on abortion? Orthodox Islam recognizes mutually contradictory positions. Right? We don't even fit into the culture wars because half the time we don't, you know what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is that's actually a liberating force. And I think every tradition has that where effectively what I'm saying is if the community doesn't work, we should give young people enough religious literacy, they can build their own communities that work for them. Because not every community is going to work for everyone, and then they don't have to. Um, because we, but we do have to have kinds of communities. Not, again, not necessarily religious. I'm going to pass it on because I know we have a lot of time. I hope that. Oh, sure. Yeah, if we can go to the student here. Uh, Harun's book, if you're looking for it, is called Two Billion Caliphs. And I think chapter two is prophets that you were just talking about. Yeah. Chapter two. Wow. I read it. Thank I'm just you. showing off. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Hi. Okay. Hi, my name is Giordano Slama. I am with uh, Basil Scholars. Um, <laughs> Um, the question I wanted to ask is, how do you think we can use religious spaces, especially, for example, if it's Christian and then also like a Muslim space, how can we um, work with each other to enable civic change in our communities, especially in light of recent divisions in our country? Mm -hmm. take it? Oh. oh, that's because I just didn't answer the last one. I have, that's a good I question. Like I know I feel. Right. Um, here's what I want to say. You know, I spoke a little earlier, just a few minutes ago, about how hard it is even within the Jewish community for people to be able to talk to each other across difference, but yet we have this technology that has been developed over thousands of years, and one of the ways that Jews historically have had conversations with each other is through the lens of text. So it will never rarely just be me and you talking to each other, each of us thinking that we know the truth with capital T. There will always be a third text in the conversation, an ancient one, a contemporary one, doesn't matter if it was written by a Jew. So I think the first thing we have to do as religious communities is we have to actually prioritize this work. I mean, um, the, America is a terribly broken place and it is a deeply, deeply beautiful country with so much possibility to live up to its ideals. And there is anti-Semitism in America and the Jews, this has perhaps arguably been the best country for the Jews in all of our history. And so we have a responsibility um, to continue to have these conversations from the time when our children are little about how to be good citizens which might include making a lot of good trouble, right? But like how to be good citizens and how to be able to talk to each other and then how to be able to talk across these sorts of differences as well. 
I'll just say very quickly as a, a quick suggestion, um, find times of year where um, every religious tradition emphasizes charity, service, uh, care for others, and, and find times of year when those um, commandments are, are amplified. And that's a, good, that's a good starting point. You know, for example, Ramadan, because I'm speaking from my own tradition, is a time when Muslims are counseled to be especially generous. That's a great time for a Muslim community, you know, leadership to reach out to other faith traditions and bring their own communities along and say, you know, we're all in this mode right now. Let's start it and then let's continue it after that. And I think those are times when you use people's emotions and commitments and, and push them in a, in a positive direction. That's great. Time for, for one more question, perhaps over here. Thank you. Um, so first, Haroon, is that your name? Yeah. Columbia is an Ivy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Let's get your dad on speaker. Can I give you a hug? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You did God it. bless you. I'm going to talk to your father about that if you'd like. Um, <laughs> so um, my question is, <laughs> um, what's the difference between religion and spirituality. When, when people, I have friends who like say, oh, I'm an atheist, and therefore I don't participate in organized religion. And, I'm, and then we talk about gratitude, and they feel spirituality mm. and gratitude. So I'm just sort of trying to navigate in this modern times with these ancient ideas, um, you know, what the difference is. And then the follow-up question, if there's time, is, um, is religion a means to an end or an end unto itself? You love theory. I feel like you really want to answer the religion. I'll um, I'll I'll hold on to my my moderator hat, my moderator turban, um, (laughs) and 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 let you all and let you all take it. But it's a fantastic question. That's a fantastic question. Okay, I think religion is a means to an end. It is never an end in itself. If it becomes an end in itself, it becomes harsh. It's idol worship. Yeah, it is. In the Islamic tradition, it's idolatry. Uh, And and you know even very significant Muslim religious figures like Abraham, who we believe was. Uh, you know, part of the Muslim tradition, are, are directly chastised by God when they take away people's rights based on religion. Um, so it, it is a means. It is a technology of the self. Uh, spirituality and religion, that's a great. We have like 30 seconds. I will just say this. Um, very quickly, uh, I, I believe all people have a religious impulse, a spiritual impulse, whatever you call it. Um, if it is suffocated or it is denied or it is uh, uh, closed off, then we suffer. How we express that is up to the person themselves, whether that's spirituality. Uh, so, you know, you say uh, someone who's atheist and spiritual, uh, whether you are atheist or theist, you are still spiritual. Uh, the, the, the desire to be connected to worship, uh, to, to feel purpose and feel a calling is as fundamental to our humanity as, as a desire for friendship, for love, uh, for food and for shelter. And, and just as a society that denies people those material things is, is a, a painful one, uh, a society that would deny us the opportunity to explore those for ourselves uh, is a painful one. So hopefully that touches on it. Thank yeah. you. Any final words, Kate? Sure. That's great. Okay, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Simranjit Singh is Executive Director of the Religion and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. Kate Bowler is an author, podcast host, and Associate Professor of American Religious History at Duke Divinity School. Haroon Mogul is Director of Strategy at the Concordia Forum, a transatlantic network of Muslim leaders dedicated to pluralism, dialogue, and shared success through service. Shira Stutman is the founder of Mixed Multitudes, an organization that exposes diverse groups of Jews and fellow travelers to Jewish life, tradition, and conversation. She's interim rabbi at Aspen Jewish Congregation and the founding rabbi of Sixth and I Synagogue in Washington, D.C. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.